Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Second Reverie, Part Two. Anthracite. It does not burn freely, so I put on the blower. Quaint and good-natured Xavier de Maistre would have made, I dare say, a pretty epilogue about a sheet-iron blower, but I cannot. Voyage à tour de ma chambre. I try to bring back the image that belonged to the lingering bituminous flame, but with my eyes on that dark blower, how can I? It is the black curtain of destiny which drops down before our brightest dreams. How often the phantoms of joy regale us, and dance before us, golden-winged, angel-faced, heart-warming, and make an elysium in which the dreaming soul bathes and feels translated to another existence. And then, sudden as night, or a cloud, a word, a step, a thought, a memory, will chase them away, like scared deer vanishing over a grey horizon of moorland. I know not justly, if it be a weakness or a sin, to create these phantoms that we love, and to group them into a paradise, soul-created. But if it is a sin, it is a sweet and enchanting sin, and if it is a weakness, it is a strong and stirring weakness. If this heart is sick of the falsities that meet it at every hand, and is eager to spend that power which nature has ribbed it with, on some object worthy of its fullness and depth, shall it not feel a rich relief, nay more, an exercise in keeping with its end, if it flow out, strong as a tempest, wild as a rushing river, upon those ideal creations which imagination invents, and which are tempered by our best sense of beauty, purity, and grace? Useless, do you say? Ay, it is as useless as the pleasure of looking, hour upon hour, over bright landscapes. It is as useless as the rapt enjoyment of listening with heart full of eyes brimming to such music as the miserere at Rome. It is as useless as the ecstasy of kindling your soul into fervour and love, and madness, over pages that reek with genius. There are, indeed, base-moulded souls who know nothing of this. They laugh, they sneer, they even affect to pity. Just so the Huns, under the avenging Attila, who had been used to foul cookery and steaks stewed under their saddles, laughed brutally at the spiced banquets of an Apicius. No, this phantom-making is no sin, or if it be, it is sinning with a soul so full, so earnest, that it can cry to heaven cheerily, and sure of a gracious hearing, Peccavi misericord. But my fire is in a glow, a pleasant glow, throwing a tranquil, steady light to the farthest corner of my garret. How unlike it is to the flashing play of the sea-coal, unlike as an unsteady, uncertain working heart to the true and earnest constancy of one cheerful and right. After all, thought I, give me such a heart, not bent on vanities, not blazing too sharp with sensibilities, not throwing out coquettish jets of flame, not wavering and meaningless with pretended warmth, but open, glowing and strong. Its dark shades and angles it may have, for what is a soul worth that does not take a slaty tinge from those griefs that chill the blood? Yet still the fire is gleaming, 
you see it in the crevices, and anon it will give radiance to the whole mass. It hurts the eyes, this fire, and I draw up a screen painted over with rough but graceful figures. The true heart wears always the veil of modesty, not of prudery, which is a dingy, iron, repulsive screen. It will not allow itself to be looked on too near, it might scorch, but through the veil you feel the warmth, and through the pretty figures that modesty will robe itself in, you can see all the while the golden outlines, and by that token you know that it is glowing and burning with a pure and steady flame. With such a heart the mind fuses naturally, a holy and heated fusion. They work together like twins born. With such a heart, as Raphael says to Adam, love hath his seat, in reason, and is judicious. But let me distinguish this heart from your clay-cold, lukewarm, half-hearted soul. Consider it, because ignorant, judicious, because possessed of no latent fires that need a curb, prudish, because with no warm blood to tempt. This sort of soul may pass scatheless through the fiery furnace of life, strong only in its weakness, pure because of its failings, and good only by negation. It may triumph over love and sin and death, but it will be a triumph of the beast, which has neither passions to subdue, or energy to attack, or hope to quench. Let us come back to the steady and earnest heart, glowing like my anthracite coal. I fancy I see such a one now. The eye is deep and reaches back to the spirit. It is not the trading eye weighing your purse. It is not the worldly eye weighing position. It is not the beastly eye weighing your appearance. It is the heart's eye weighing your soul. It is full of deep, tender, and earnest feeling. It is an eye which looked on once you long to look on again. It is an eye which will haunt your dreams, an eye which will give a color, in spite of you, to all your reveries. It is an eye which lies before you in your future, like a star in the mariner's heaven. By it, unconsciously, and from force of deep soul habit, you take all your observations. It is meek and quiet, but it is full as a spring that gushes in flood. An Aphrodite and a Mercury, a Vaucluse and a Clitumnus. The face is an angel face, no matter for curious lines of beauty, no matter for popular talk of prettiness, no matter for its angles or its proportions, no matter for its color or its form. The soul is there, illuminating every feature, burnishing every point, hallowing every surface. It tells of honesty, sincerity, and worth. It tells of truth and virtue, and you clasp the image to your heart as the received ideal of your fondest dreams. The figure may be this or that, it may be tall or short, it matters nothing, the heart is there. The talk may be soft or low, serious or piquant, a free and honest soul is warming and softening it all. As you speak, it speaks back again, as you think, it thinks again, not in conjunction, but in the same sign of the zodiac. As you love, it loves in return. It is the heart for a sister, and happy is the man who can claim such. The warmth that lies in it is not only generous, but religious, genial, devotional, tender, self-sacrificing, and looking heavenward. 
A man without some sort of religion is, at best, a poor reprobate, the football of destiny, with no tie linking him to infinity, and the wondrous eternity that is begun with him. But a woman without it is even worse, a flame without heat, a rainbow without color, a flower without perfume. A man may, in some sort, tie his frail hopes and honors with weak, shifting ground-tackle to business, or to the world. But a woman without that anchor, which they call faith, is adrift and a wreck. A man may clumsily contrive a kind of moral responsibility out of his relations to mankind, but a woman, in her comparatively isolated sphere, where affection and not purpose is the controlling motive, can find no basis for any system of right action but that of spiritual faith. A man may craze his thought and his brain to trustfulness in such poor harborage as fame and reputation may stretch before him, but a woman, where can she put her hope in storms, if not in heaven? And that sweet trustfulness, that abiding love, that enduring hope, mellowing every page and scene of life, lighting them with pleasantest radiance, when the world-storms break like an army with smoking cannon, what can bestow it all but a holy soul-tie to what is above the storms, and to what is stronger than an army with cannon? Who that has enjoyed the counsel and the love of a Christian mother, but will echo the thought with energy, and hallow it with a tear? Et moi je pleure. My fire is now a mass of red-hot coal. The whole atmosphere of my room is warm. The heat that with its glow can light up and warm a garret, with loose casements and shattered roof, is capable of the best love, domestic love. I draw farther off, and the images upon the screen change. The warmth, the hour, the quiet, create a home feeling, and that feeling, quick as lightning, has stolen from the world of fancy, a Promethean theft, a home object, about which my musings go on to drape themselves in luxurious reverie. There she sits, by the corner of the fire, in a neat home dress, of sober yet most adorning colour. A little bit of lace ruffle is gathered about the neck, by a blue ribbon, and the ends of the ribbon are crossed under the dimpling chin, and are fastened neatly by a simple, unpretending brooch, your gift. The arm, a pretty taper arm, lies over the carved elbow of the oaken chair. The hand, white and delicate, sustains a little home volume that hangs from her fingers. The forefinger is between the leaves, and the others lie in relief upon the dark embossed cover. She repeats in a silver voice a line that has attracted her fancy, and you listen, or at any rate you seem to listen, with your eyes now on the lips, now on the forehead, and now on the finger, where glitters like a star the marriage ring, the little gold band at which she does not chafe. That tells you she is yours. Weak testimonial, if that were all that told it. The eye, the voice, the look, the heart, tells you stronger and better that she is yours. And a feeling within, where it lies you know not, and whence it comes you know not, but sweeping over heart and brain, like a fire-flood, tells you, too, that you are hers, irremediably bound as Massinger's Hortensio. 
I am subject to another's will and can not speak, nor do, without permission from her. The fire is warm as ever. What length of heat in this hard-burning anthracite! It has scarce sunk yet to the second bar of the grate, though the clock upon the church tower has tolled eleven. I, mused I, gaily, such a heart does not grow faint, it does not spend itself in idle puffs of blaze, it does not become chilly with the passing years, but it gains and grows in strength and heat until the fire of life is covered over with the ashes of death. Strong or hot as it may be at the first, it loses nothing. It may not, indeed, as time advances, throw out, like the coal-fire, when new-lit, jets of blue sparkling flame. It may not continue to bubble and gush like a fountain at its source, but it will become a strong river of flowing charities. Clitumnus breaks from under the Tuscan mountains, almost a flood. On a glorious spring day, I leaned down and tasted the water, as it boiled from its sources, the little temple of white marble, the mountain sides grey with olive orchards, the white streak of road, the tall poplars of the river margin, were glistening in the bright Italian sunlight around me. Later I saw it when it had become a river, still clear and strong, flowing serenely between its prairie banks, on which the white cattle of the valley browsed, and still farther down I welcomed it, where it joins the Arno, flowing slowly under wooded shores, skirting the fair Florence and the bounteous fields of the bright Cassino, gathering strength and volume, till between Pisa and Leghorn, in sight of the wondrous leaning tower and the shipmasts of the Tuscan port, it gave its waters to its life's grave, the sea. The recollection blended sweetly now with my musings over my garret grate, and offered a flowing image to bear along upon its bosom the affections that were grouping in my reverie. It is a strange force of the mind and of the fancy that can set the objects which are closest to the heart far down the lapse of time. Even now, as the fire fades slightly and sinks slowly toward the bar, which is the dial of my hours, I seem to see that image of love which has played upon the fire-glow of my grate years hence. It still covers the same warm, trustful, religious heart. Trials have tried it, afflictions have weighed upon it, danger has scared it, and death is coming near to subdue it, but still it is the same. The fingers are thinner, the face has lines of care and sorrow crossing each other in a web-work that makes the golden tissue of humanity but the heart is fond and steady. It is the same dear heart, the same self-sacrificing heart, warming like a fire all around it. Affliction has tempered joy, and joy adorned affliction. Life and all its troubles have become distilled in a holy incense, rising ever from your fireside, an offering to your household gods. Your dreams of reputation, your swift determination, your impulsive pride, your deep uttered vows to win a name, have all sobered into affection, have all blended into that glow of feeling which finds its centre and hope and joy in home. From my soul I pity him whose soul does not leap at the mere utterance of that name. A home! 
it is the bright blessed adorable phantom which sits highest on the sunny horizon that girdeth life when shall it be reached when shall it cease to be a glittering daydream and become fully and fairly yours it is not the house though that may have its charms nor the fields carefully tilled and streaked with your own footpaths nor the trees though their shadow be to you like that of a great rock in a weary land nor yet is it the fireside with its sweet blaze play nor the pictures which tell of loved ones nor the cherished books but more far than all these it is the presence the lairs of your worship are there the altar of your confidence there the end of your worldly faith is there and adorning it all and sending your blood in passionate flow is the ecstasy of the conviction that there at least you are beloved that there you are understood that there your errors will meet ever with gentlest forgiveness that there your troubles will be smiled away that there you may unburden your soul fearless of harsh unsympathizing ears and that there you may be entirely and joyfully yourself there may be those of coarse mould and i have seen such even in the disguise of women who will reckon these feelings puling sentiment god pity them as they have need of pity that image by the fireside calm loving joyful is still there it goes not however my spirit tosses because my wish and every will keep it there unerring the fire shows through the screen yellow and warm as a harvest sun it is in its best age and that age is ripeness a ripe heart now i know what wordsworth meant when he said the good die first and they whose hearts are dry as summer dust burn to the socket the town clock is striking midnight the cold of the night wind is urging its way in at the door and window crevice the fire has sunk almost to the third bar of the grate still my dream tires not but wraps fondly round that image now in the far-off chilling mists of age growing sainted love has blended into reverence passion has subsided into joyous content and what if age comes said i in a new flush of excitation what else proves the wine what else gives inner strength and knowledge and a steady pilot hand to steer your boat out boldly upon that shoreless sea where the river of life is running let the white ashes gather let the silver hair lie where lay the auburn let the eye gleam farther back and dimmer it is but retreating toward the pure sky depths an usher to the land where you will follow after it is quite cold and i take away the screen altogether there is a little glow yet but presently the coal slips down below the third bar with a rumbling sound like that of coarse gravel falling into a new dug grave she is gone well the heart has burned fairly evenly generously while there was mortality to kindle it eternity will surely kindle it better tears indeed but they are tears of thanksgiving of resignation and of hope and the eyes full of those tears which ministering angels bestow climb with quick vision upon the angelic ladder and open upon the futurity where she has entered and upon the country which she enjoys 
It is midnight, and the sounds of life are dead. You are in the death chamber of life, but you are also in the death chamber of care. The world seems sliding backward, and hope and you are sliding forward. The clouds, the agonies, the vain expectancies, the braggart noise and fears now vanish behind the curtain of the past and of the night. They roll from your soul like a load. In the dimness of what seems the ending present, you reach out your prayerful hands toward that boundless future where God's eye lifts over the horizon like sunrise on the ocean. Do you recognize it as an earnest of something better? I, if the heart has been pure and steady, burning like my fire, it has learned it without seeming to learn. Faith has grown upon it as the blossom grows upon the bud, or the flower upon the slow-lifting stalk. Cares cannot come into the dreamland where I live. They sink with the dying street noise, and vanish with the embers of my fire. Even ambition, with its hot and shifting flame, is all gone out. The heart in the dimness of the fading fire-glow is all itself. The memory of what good things have come over it, in the troubled youth-life, bear it up, and hope and faith bear it on. There is no extravagant pulse-glow, there is no mad fever of the brain, but only the soul, forgetting, for once, all, save its destinies and its capacities for good. And it mounts higher and higher on these wings of thought, and hope burns stronger and stronger out of the ashes of decaying life, until the sharp edge of the grave seems but a foot-scraper at the wicket of Elysium. But what is paper, and what are words? Vain things. The soul leaves them behind. The pen staggers like a starveling cripple, and your heart is leaving it, a whole length of the life-course behind. The soul's mortal longings, its poor baffled hopes, are dim now in the light of those infinite longings which spread over it soft and holy as dawn. Eternity has stretched a corner of its mantle toward you, and the breath of its waving fringe is like a gale of Araby. A little rumbling, and a last plunge of the cinders within my grate startled me, and dragged back my fancy from my flower-chase, beyond the phlegathon to the white ashes that were now thick all over the darkened coals. And this, mused I, is only a bachelor dream about a pure and loving heart, and to-morrow comes cankerous life again. Is it wished for, or if not wished for, is the not wishing wicked? Will dreams satisfy, reach high as they can? Are we not, after all, poor groveling mortals tied to earth, and to each other? Are there not sympathies and hopes and affections which can only find their issue and blessing in fellow-absorption? Does not the heart, steady and pure as it may be, and mounting on soul-flights often as it dare, want a human sympathy perfectly indulged to make it healthful? Is there not a fount of love for this world as there is a fount of love for the other? Is there not a certain store of tenderness cooped in this heart, which must and will be lavished before the end comes? Does it not plead with the judgment, and make issue with prudence year after year? Does it not dog your steps all through your social pilgrimage, setting up its claims in forms fresh and odorous as new-blown heath-bells, saying, 
Come away from the heartless, the factitious, the vain, and measure your heart not by its constraints, but by its fullness, and by its depth. Let it run, and be joyous. Is there no demon that comes to your harsh night dreams, like a taunting fiend, whispering, Be satisfied, keep your heart from running over, bridle those affections, there is nothing worth loving. Does not some sweet being hover over your spirit of reverie, like a beckoning angel, crowned with halo, saying, Hope on, hope ever, the heart and I are kindred, our mission will be fulfilled, nature shall accomplish its purpose, the soul shall have its paradise. I threw myself upon my bed, and as my thoughts ran over the definite, sharp business of the morrow, my reverie and its glowing images that made my heart bound, swept away like those fleecy rain-clouds of August, on which the sun paints rainbows, driving southward by the cool, rising wind from the north. I wonder, thought I, as I dropped asleep, if a married man with his sentiment made actual is, after all, as happy as we poor fellows in our dreams? End of Second Reverie, Part 2